Welcome to this episode of the Atlantic Career Journey Podcast. Today's guest is Bonnie Block, who's the co-founder of Ripple. She's had an amazing career through several of the most recognized marketing agencies in addition to a stop at Delta Airlines. But as co-founder of a breakthrough agency service platform named Ripple, Bonnie is passionate about the new path forward in helping clients, talent, and agencies alike with digital marketing and experience solutions. So Ripple is the answer to bringing more transparency and efficiency to a broken industry model. And she's determined to make sure you know it. So it's quite an innovative approach, and I'm looking forward to hearing more about it. So welcome to the podcast, Bonnie. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for joining. Um, I know that we had talked a little bit about where our paths across in the past with Delta and with Mannheim, but um, I really do want to hear like how things got started with you, and then we'll talk more about Ripple because that's really an innovative approach, and I definitely want to hear more about that. But let's maybe start with your background, kind of a little bit about you know where you grew up, um, uh-huh. you know, maybe what your family you know uh, was located, and then kind of what you were interested in school, high school, going into college, and then coming out with your first job. What's that look like? Well, I started, I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, and, um, you know, I had decided that I was entirely too important for Nashville, Tennessee at the time, (laughs) that I needed to go, you know, big city. And I was actually um, on a theater track. I was part of the Tennessee Performing Arts Center um, troupe. I was one of the youngest members they'd ever had, and, and I was, you know, destined for Juilliard, I thought. Wow. And then I basically, you know, I had conversations with the, with the college counselors and they said, you know, theater is great, um, but it's a great hobby. You know, you need to think about something that's going to be a career. And I think if I would say one thing, you know, back to those folks, it's, it's just, you've really got to be careful what you say to young, impressionable people, really, because, um, you know, what I did at that moment was say, okay, fine. I'll continue with theater in my spare time, but I'm going to look for something else that I'm passionate about. So uh, basically what happened is, is I knew I needed to be around creative people and around creativity. That was really what I loved. Yeah. And I got into advertising, even, you know, as a senior in high school, I worked as a receptionist at an advertising agency because I, I had gotten um, a, a, an entry-level type job where it was over the summer after my senior year. So I was able to go in and at least have that experience and, and hopefully be able to get some, some experience and projects, you know, just being in that environment. Okay. Was this in Nashville? It was in Nashville. Okay. It was. And, you know, I, I loved it. I loved being, I, I thought, wow, this is cool to be so close to the creative process. I, I'm, absolutely fascinated by all of this. And so I, I actually went to college at Boston University because they had a advertising agency in-house. They also had one of the finest communication schools in the United States. And I just, I knew that that is what I wanted to do from, from that moment on working in that ad agency in Nashville. And so I went to uh, Boston University and participated in their internal agency, which was really neat. Um, what they did is, is they had a whole agency set up and you could choose to either be a creative role or an account role or a production role or the three. And they got nonprofits to give projects to the students there. And so my very, very first project was 
the Massachusetts Council for Compulsive Gambling. <laughs> and so I was an account person because that is definitely what I thought, you know, I, I wanted to do. And so uh, we ended up, we had a great project. Um, we ended up putting um, posters in all of the trains in Boston, in the bus stops and things like that. And it was, I remember the ad to this day, it was, this is the house that Jack built and it was a house made out of cards. And so I thought it was an awesome concept and I remember it vividly, but, I, but that really is how I got my, my first taste of how advertising works. And then after that, I got an internship. This, they, they were big about doing internships. And so I worked for a company called Delafamina Magnamy. And Jerry Delafamina was the man who created that Volkswagen ad that everybody knows about from the 70s. You know, that where it's, you know what I'm talking about? Those old, old Volkswagen ads where I think a, a really tall person is getting out of it. Do you remember this? Were these print ads or were these TV commercials? No, these were print, mostly print ads. Okay. I've had some, some, anyway. Okay. I remember some of them. And I think if I, if I saw one, it would definitely remind. So and I, I was a car freak. So if you told me the actual car, I bet I would remember it. Well, it's the Volkswagen bug. It okay. Was the so bug. they were all Beetle ads? They were all Beetle ads. Okay. Yeah. So like there was, I think there was one where there's a convertible um, where I remember Maybe. somebody sort of, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, but it was, it, Jerry, it was Jerry Delafamina's fame um, were these Volkswagen ads. And anyway, he, he started a big agency we had about 150 people in Boston. And this was before I even graduated college. I went, you know, and did this internship for them mm -hmm. and ended up offering me an, a job, a full-time job at the end of the internship. Um, and wow. so it was kind of a crucial decision there because I was like, do I, you know, do I stay the course, get my degree, or do I take advantage of this opportunity that's been presented to me? And I went ahead and did it. And I went to night school. So I worked during the day and then I finished oh, wow. school at night and got my degree. Um, but it was one of those things where getting a job at an ad agency was such a big deal. Uh, in fact, they had told us, you know, the only ways in was either through traffic. I don't even know if you know what traffic is, but that is what, you know, like the production you, either you can get a job through traffic or you can be a junior media planner and buyer. And so uh, this particular role was with traffic. So I really got to, to know every element of the advertising world in that, in that case. And, and so, so I started there. I worked, so, do you want so me to keep on going or? <laughs> well, Bonnie, let me, let me interrupt you. Cause I'm, I'm curious to know, like back in, in high school um, where, where your parents head was because you know, you had, you had a, a guidance counselor that told you, all right, you know, you've got, you know, a lot of like theater and stage interest uh -huh. and, uh -huh. and experience, but you really should look at something else. Did your parents kind of also stand behind that assessment or were they a little more neutral? Uh, I think that they were just leaving it up to the experts more okay. than anything. And, and so, you know, I was getting advice um, about the job world, you know, the job market and, mm -hmm. And what not, I should not bad, not bad advice, but yeah, it's probably um, yeah. Sometimes I mean, you, I, well, yeah, you don't want to crush somebody's dream either, right? You don't, you don't. Yeah. And they didn't. They didn't crush my dream. They they had it alive, but they wanted to put it in perspective and Makes, and wanted to yeah. make sure that I knew that there might be other things I needed to think about and pursue. Yeah. So so, you know, fa so fast forward to college um, when you got this opportunity to go to this. 
um, this Boston agency and to really kind of quit your full-time school and move that mm-hmm. to night school. Mm-hmm. What did your parents think then? Oh, they were horrified. Everybody was horrified. Yeah. I got a lot of pushback because everybody was like, you're not going to finish. You're, you can't do this. And I'm like, I have to, you all, this is, this is an opportunity. I need to, to establish. I know this is what I want to do. And this is the people that I want to do it with. I've worked with them for several months and mm-hmm. I'll make it happen. So um, I had to live up to that promise because I can promise you it was not easy. It is yeah. hard to go from full-time work like that all day long to then go sit in a classroom for three hours and try and, you know, be able to study and do all of that. So it was quite a um, hard road to hoe there. Um, now, how long did you do night school? I did it for a semester and a half. So I had, you know, almost a year left of school. Okay. I was when I was offered the job. So, um, you know, it was, I was doing it just one class at a time. So it took, it took a while. I, it took yeah. me, I was doing this for at least two years. I was doing night school at the same time. Yeah. Just taking what I could. And this was not, you know, this is before online, honestly, online classes and whatnot. I mean, you had to physically be there um, yeah. at night for the classes. And so, you know, not, not easy, but definitely worth it because it did, it did, it, it set my course um, by being part of that agency, by taking it on early. And, you know, by the time I was 25, turning 26, I was opening an office for them in Dallas, Texas. So, and I already had five years of experience under my belt then at that moment. Yeah. That's why, you know, I just, I got underway early. And I just, I was able to be offered things even earlier, but. Well, it sounds like your intuition was correct that you definitely were making the right decision, even though people maybe thought you were, had lost your mind or were short-sighted about this opportunity. But, you know, and, and it sounds like too you, I mean, I know you anyway, you're, you're focused, you're driven, you know, when you've got an idea and you're a creative person anyway, but you also have sort of the gumption to drive through to make sure that it happens and mm-hmm. the grit to, to really, you know, make it successful. So it sounds like this was even at 22 to 25 years old, you still had that. I did. I was very, very directed. And um, I, 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 th- I know I was fortunate that way. There are a lot of people that don't know what they want, even when they get out of college. But, you know, I think by having the experience of working in the theater, knowing what I felt like when I was in a creative environment and how important that is, that um, I was really able then to just be able to translate that into a, a great job and one that was interesting to me. So um, that's awesome. Yeah. So opening up a new office at 25 years old, tell me about that. So you moved from, from Boston to Dallas to do this. I did. I did. So um, we had gotten a account uh, Ford financial services had a credit card uh, called the associates. And it was based out of Dallas, actually Las Colinas, Texas, which is right outside of Dallas. Yep. And, Irvine. Uh, yep. Or Irvine, yep. Texas. Yep. Yep. And so we, um, we, my husband and I packed up and left Boston and went down to Dallas to take advantage of this opportunity. And I set up an account service office there. And, you know, at that time, we had creative, we had production, we had everything still in Boston with the exception of the account service office that was there because the client was there. And 
I don't even think it's possible to have somebody imagine what it was like to have an office, you know, in a different time zone and then not have email. I mean, this was before email. So everything we did was fax and phone. Everything we did was fax and phone. And so it took a enormous amount of coordination and patience you know, working with another office in that manner under, you know, tight deadlines. I mean, this was back in the days when every single time the APR on a credit card changed, you know, we would then drop another, you know, 4 million pieces of mail. Mm-hmm. You remember those days back, you know, it was just at this mad rush. It was just, it was, it was exciting to be in the middle of all of that, but it was a mad rush to um, be out with the latest and greatest and have the greatest offer out there. And so, that's really where I cut my teeth on, um, you know, very, very intense direct marketing. Then it wasn't just direct mail. We also used um, other things as well, but that was um, the primary component of that office was that. And then uh, I got a phone call from Ogilvy and Mather in Atlanta. And mm-hmm. what was interesting to me about that position was they needed someone to work on uh, Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, which used to be called Eggleston. So I worked on the Eggleston piece of business. And then they also needed someone to run the Zoo Atlanta account. And after coming off of credit card marketing and, you know, that subject, that dry subject, I should say, yeah. to be able to do children and animals. And, you know, I also worked a little bit on Suntory Water, which was the home delivery of water for Coca-Cola. So I could work on a big brand there. Mm-hmm. That really was appealing to me. And, and as you kind of look at it, I told you my family's from Nashville. I was getting closer and closer. I wasn't, I wasn't moving back to Nashville, but I was getting closer and closer by going Boston, Dallas, and then end up in Atlanta. Yeah. Was, um, it, was that the ultimate goal was to hope, you know, thinking at that time to get back to Nashville or did you know that you wanted to be close to be able to visit, but you were, like you said earlier, a little bit bigger city? Yeah, exactly. That, yeah. that was the appeal was just to be able to be, you know, three hours, three and a half hours away. Yep. But, um, you know, and we, I, 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 this is an important component of this story, but uh, we had a surprise happen in Dallas uh, that was my, the birth of my 26-year-old, now my son. Uh-huh. And uh, that wasn't supposed to happen. Now, remember how directed and how career-focused I am, right? Wasn't on the plan, right? It wasn't on the plan. <laughs> it was not on the plan. Um, in fact, modern medicine had told me that that was not going to be an option for me. Well, they were wrong. Mm-hmm. So, um, so what ends up happening is, is when I moved to Atlanta, I have a one-year-old and, and I'm faced with, I want a career. I want to advance, you know, but I was one of three people, three at Ogilvy and Mather. They were 120 people in the Atlanta office. And I was one of three that had children. Wow. That's what I was faced with. I mean, I, I walked in the first day, even before I started, I walked in, you know, that first day just to say hello to my boss and tell them I'd made it and all that. And I had Andrew with me and they thought I was a nanny. They thought I was, some, and I was like, no, uh, I'm actually going to be working here. So yeah, that was, um, you know, that was the environment then. Mm-hmm. Uh, women with kids didn't work really. And uh, certainly not in advertising. It was a very young career and I was young. I mean, I, I checked that box, 
but I had started a family. So that was interesting. Yeah, it was definitely a different time because I know that, um, you know, the, the agencies at the time, like you said, they were young, but there was also sort of this dynamic where you worked a lot and there was just a lot of things happening and, and it was, there wasn't any sort of um, work-life balance or family-friendly, you know, when, mm. um, when Julia was working with Delta, you know, we had just mm. gotten married in 93. And so for the next two years, I mean, I, I barely saw her. It was just, it, and that was just in the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in a corporation, but it was the same kind of feel where, you know, your 12, 14, 16 hour days were, were uncommon and you didn't plan for them. It's like, oh, I'm going to miss dinner tonight. I'll be home at 10. You know, <laughs> what? Wait a minute. Yeah. Well, you know what? You're, at least for me, all this agency work, you're in the service industry and yes. you are supposed to be on the other end of that phone when it, when it, when it calls, you know, yep. and so as a result, your life is really not your own. You don't have control. And uh, in fact, this is a perfect point to bring this up because I was at Ogilvy and Mather for about three and a half years. And then I decided uh, that I wanted a, more control in my life. And so that's when I left and went to Delta because I wanted to go client side because they looked like they had the good life, right? Mm-hmm. Looked like they were, you know, I, I think it was, I, there was part of me that knew that it was important for my career to actually have both sides of the equation, not just be agency, but also be client side. Mm-hmm. And so, but I went to Delta believing in work-life balance, believing in, you know, that it was going to be a measure of control. Um, and I found out, well, pretty, well, sort of quickly. I mean, I guess I was there for about four or five years in total, but I am better suited agency side. I love learning new things and I was bored, honestly. I mean, I, yeah. that sounds horrible and sounds like I'm not grateful. I, I was completely grateful for that experience. It was the right thing at the right time. But I wanted to learn about a lot of industries and I wanted to learn about a lot of, um, you know, be on the, on the bleeding edge of technology. I was, I was all about that and making sure that I was always, you know, interested in bringing value to clients in that way. And so that's really, I found my home again back, you know, I had started my own business for a period of time after Delta doing my mm-hmm. own consulting work. And then I ended up accepting a, a job with Gray Advertising and um, came on and ran all of their accounts. Um, and they, they kind of drew me out of my own business. And, and that reasons, again, I'm making calls for family. You know, people had started, my, my children had started um, private school by then. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you're making calls that are not necessarily for your own. You know, it's much as it's, important for the family you know right yep so yeah so so gray advertising allowed you to sort of do some of the things that you were doing with your own business as kind of an umbrella of their company it did it did i mean i was i I had a lot of accounts um that i managed and and that was great it was my introduction into digital because prior to that i had done brand advertising i had done direct marketing i had done loyalty marketing through delta and so this was the chance for me to um, really get in and understand and um, develop my digital marketing skills. And so I ran uh, G2 Direct and Digital for them um, at the end there and then ended up moving with my boss um, to New Run. He became president of New Run and he called me over and he said, we need you in Atlanta. So I went over and did that and went to New Run um, 
And then New Run was the old Ant Farm Interactive. I'm not sure if you knew that agency or not. Did you know? Did you do New Run through Mannheim, though, yes. right? Yeah, that's okay. that's actually where you and I met. You were at New yeah. Run. Um, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And then, um, uh, let's see, New Run was purchased, <laughs> was purchased by Publicis, and then they merged into Razorfish. And so I went to Razorfish, and that's where I met my, my current business partners, was at Razorfish. And so let, me back, let me back you up just before we get into Razorfish. So you okay. mentioned the term digital marketing. And mm-hmm. you, for those that are younger, you know, everything's digital these days. But kind of explain that term in the time that you were there. What, what made it so unique, um, just given where things were? Uh, well, I mean, we were building websites for companies that did not have the websites. I mean, it wasn't a redesign. It was the initial design. Uh, so we were doing website work. We were doing uh, banner ads, uh, display ads. Uh, we were doing, you know, microsites and landing pages. We were doing email deployment. We were doing, um, I'm trying to think what else might be, might qualify. Um, yeah, and some of those things are still around today, but to your point, like companies weren't used to it. They, they had no internal expertise. So right. they had to go outside and, and learn from the experts about, you know, how do we... How do we handle things with email? How do we handle things with banner ads? Where do you target that? And it's mm-hmm. it's a different it's a different uh, way. But it also gave you analytics, which you didn't always have, you know, in in print ads. Or there was a different way that you could read the audience. Um, that was fairly yeah. new, right? Well, I I had started in direct marketing, and direct marketing was all about analytics and you know return on investment. So I, I had a great foundation and baseline from that. And understanding, you know, driving factors and making sure you're setting goals against, you know, mm-hmm. those KPIs. And so I already had a foundation of that. So I, I felt that emerge again because it was a lot harder within brand to do so. Um, but, you know, the introduction to digital honestly was exactly what you said, which was it was brand new. No one really knew how to do it. There was a whole time where a lot of agencies believe they hire one digital person and then they check the box and they have, they offer, you know, digital marketing or digital experience work. And you, you of course know that's not the case. Right. Um, but, you know, clients understood and, and, and we were, you know, this honestly, it was kind of the heyday of, of that time. We could make a lot of money doing digital work and, you know, without a lot of competition. Mm-hmm. So, um, G2 direct and digital was good for that. Yeah. Introduction. So, so Razorfish um, was sort of, um, it, cause I think they had merged with Sapien at some point too. Right. So there was these um, kind of some of the newer um, big brands that got into that um, mm-hmm. and either merged just because there were too many players or they were going into bigger things and needed a little more, um, you know, momentum or economies of scale. Tell me about how that, that played out. Well, so when I joined Razorfish, it was Razorfish, um, well, let's see, I think two years, maybe three, two years, we were Razorfish, and then we merged with Sapient. So Razorfish at that time, you know, they had had a fantastic history of being able to just sit back and let the work roll in. You know, they had such a great reputation, one of the largest digital agencies in the world, you know, premier talent, premier clients. Really, really, they didn't have to work that hard in order to get people interested in working with them. 
So when I joined, after they had bought New Run, it was kind of on the cusp of all of a sudden the phone wasn't ringing as much. And they, they were really uh, in, in trouble in the sense that, you know, they didn't have to ever proactively go out and get work. And so when I came on the scene after having been at New Run, which was much smaller, we had to be scrappier. We had to be um, much better at being able to get ourselves in front of a client and close deals and be proactive. So I kind of joined the organization and they were mo- very, very interested in that part of my skill set because mm-hmm. that was something that they had, you know, really needed to develop prior. And so they were starting to see, you know, that the, the agency itself could not just be a couple of great big brands and nothing else. They needed to supplement with other, with other accounts. Smaller accounts were okay, but that kept, you know, they were in a dangerous position otherwise, right? Yeah. So um, I did a lot of work on that with them. And then they did the merging of Sapient and Razorfish. And they are, you know, right after Publis has bought New Run, like within a month, they bought Sapient. And so Sapient and Razorfish existed for two or three years as sister companies, but still staunch competitors out in the marketplace. And they have a very, very different way of uh, doing business. Um, you know, Razorfish is, is very steeped in a strategic framework, in a strategic approach from the very beginning. Sapient is, is born from technology. So it had a, a completely different process and approach and focus than Razorfish did. And so the coming together of those two companies was really, really, really tough. Um, I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I mean, it was, it was hard because um, we were equally sized, right? Mm-hmm. And so there wasn't a clear defined winner or the one who was going to get to say, it's my way and you're going to learn how to do my way because I say so. I mean, it yeah. was equally sized. And so it was tough. It was very, very tough for many years. In fact, they have now rolled out Razorfish again. I don't know if you knew that or not. No. They have. They have brought the Razorfish brand back. It is now the marketing, digital marketing arm of a Sapient Razorfish type entity. And now Sapient, or now that's called P.S. That is still digital transformation work, but anything you know, it's supporting that in the marketing sphere is now handled by Razorfish. So, yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah, sometimes combining those cultures, I mean, you know, I'd heard through, you know, when Delta and Northwest merged, it was, you know, kept one logo, but the culture was the other one. Or, you know, more recently Mm -hmm. with like First Data and Fiserv, you know, I mean, you've got, you've got unique companies that have their own kind of skill sets and, and, you know, areas that they are, they are, um, they've got strengths in. And I think part of the merger appeal is that, oh, we're good at this and good at that. So let's combine it together. We can just, you know, run the world. And, you know, to combine those, you know, there's a lot of change management that has to go on and got to have clear alignment and vision. And, you know, Mm -hmm. some companies just think it's going to be easier than it is. And to live through that, like you have, you've you've, um, definitely got some scars from that, I'm sure. Well, I don't know if it's scars as much as it's, life just helps you kind of figure out the things that happen in life just help you figure out along the way what, what you like and accept and want more of in your life. Mm -hmm. And then you don't want. And so what, what it taught for me, because, you know, I had, I had a big project that had just been closed 
right when the merger started. So my project was kind of the trial run at how we do this together. So I was right on the front lines of trying to figure all this out and how we work to, together with one another. And so it was tiring. And so after a year and a half of this, I went into my, my current business partner actually now, and I went into him and I gave him my resignation and I said, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life, but I know I'm not doing this. And that was as much as I needed to know um, at that moment. And so, you know, I sound so brave and, and there were other factors, you know, we had my children at that point, um, you know, my youngest was going to college. So I was feeling quite free, you know, to be able to make some decisions like that. Like, I, I, I'm not sure I want to do this anymore. I've done it my entire career since I was 20 and here I am 50. Mm-hmm. Do I want to do this anymore? Yeah. And so I had that moment, you know, where I just wanted a little bit of breathing room to be able to figure it out. And so uh, I took that summer off. I ended up, I left the company in June. I took that, sum, that summer off. And then um, myself and my business partner started talking about, you know, how, how can we change? How can we make this sustainable? We know what the frustrations of clients are. We know that they, number one, are given less money to do more. Number two, us forcing them through our rigid process uh, isn't a smart path forward, you know, because a lot of times they don't need it and they're just paying for it without needing it. Um, number three, there is absolutely no transparency. I'm, uh, Paul, if you look at the way the world, you know, the, the way that Mad Men is, sets it up and the way that, you know, all of the shenanigans that go on behind the curtain and, you know, the fact that they don't know who the team is that's working on their business. They don't really know how much anything costs. I mean, there's so much, there's so much hidden in all of that process. And so, we decided after doing a bunch of research um, at, that we could model a new company and bring transform, transformation to an industry that hadn't had it ever, ever, quite frankly, because that's what, that's what this platform does that we've, that we've um, developed. And so I, I joined my you know, two business partners then. We named our company Ripple, and we decided to move forward building out an agency services platform that was going to bring efficiency and um, this transparency to a model that, that desperately needed it. And so uh, what we do is, do you want me to go on into yeah. what we do? Yeah, because okay. I think this is, for, for a lot of people that listen to this, they may not necessarily know the ins and outs. I mean, I think highlighting some of the you know, some of the gaps that Ripple is mm-hmm. certainly filling or correcting um, is, is really mm-hmm. helpful. So yeah, this is great. Okay, I will do that as I explain it. So what we are is uh, we are a group of highly vetted freelance talent. And that is, our, that is our network. And we are supported by a platform that uh, allows a client to come on to this closed platform They can answer a series of questions about their project. They can talk about what they need, the type of people they need, the skills they're looking for, beginning and end dates. We also ask them several questions that drive scope and drive costs. So then they see a summary of all all their answers, everything they've told us about it, and they can see right where they've answered something where they have increased the cost. So they can 
They can play with that if they want to. They can go forward and say, okay, I will, I will go forward with this budget. And then they are surfaced solution teams or individuals. So, you know, they can drive in, let's say they see a team that they like that can do their project. They drive in, they see their um, credentials, they see where they've worked, their experience, they see um, what key skills they had that made us match them. We have a, we have a, a matching um, algorithm, uh, you know, behind the scenes as part of this platform mm-hmm. that puts the exact correct team members in front of these clients based on you know, their skills and their experience and their uh, strengths, you know, like they have industry experience, et cetera. And then if they're available during the time the client wants this project to, to happen. So clients then, I mean, realize clients have never picked up the phone or shot us an email or anything. And what they have in their hands is they have a ballpark estimate about how much this project will cost. They know the drivers of that cost and they, they have a chance to, to be in the control seat to determine, you know, the levers that they want to pull to either bring the cost down or keep the cost where it is. They then see the teams. They drive in and see their experience. They get to pick the teams that they want to work with. Now, I'm going to stop there for a second because every single thing I have just said does not happen in the typical industry, you know, ways of going about getting a new project started. The way it typically happens is, is the client will call, say what they need for a project. The agency goes back and, you know, in their magic formula, they come back, they've got a team and they've got a price and client does not know how they arrived at that price or if this team is truly the right one. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I sound like I'm, I'm not saying nice things about agencies and I don't want it. I don't want to do that. I mean, agencies are in this situation because of the fact, you know, client budgets aren't what they used to be. Agencies can't hire against a budget that isn't there. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times they have to make decisions based on who is on the bench because you want to keep your coworkers employed, right? So you pull off your bench and you put those people on, on your project because, you know, that's, that keeps them employed. It keeps the whole, you know, company humming, et cetera. But what are the people that were sitting on the bench, the absolute right ones for the project the client had? Maybe, maybe not. You know what I mean? Hopefully yeah. they were. But because of our model and the, because of the fact that everyone we work with is a vetted freelancer, we don't have a bench. We are looking truly at who are the best people based on what you've told us about the project to pair you with. Yeah, that's, that is... Uh an amazing approach to something that's been broken for so long. You know, there are some companies that just go, Oh, well, you know, I'm hiring, you know, consultant X, Y, Z, and they're the experts or I know they're experts, but they're in business. So they must be good. Right. It's the same thing. Mm -hmm. If you're getting like a roof put on a house or something, you know, and you've got, you get three bids and you know, you go with the lowest one or you go with the one that you've heard of before. And that's pretty much it. But you know, you don't know who's going to show up at your house. (coughs) Right. Right. Same thing here. Right. I think this is, this is great to be able to kind of see the, you know, the resumes and the experience of each one and decide, you know what, this, if, if I wait another month, I might get somebody different, you know, that can maybe be a better fit or whatever the case is. And I think too, right. you know, companies are really, you know, everything's about efficiency right now, you know, and mm-hmm. budgets aren't increasing. You said they're, de- they're decreasing. And so, 
being able to kind of see where some of the costs are and the levers that you can pull to get down into a, I can't spend more than 500 grand on this project. Well, now you kind of see, do I want to wait more on content creation or on, you know, backend technology or whatever right. the, the mixture is? Yeah, that's great. That's, you know, I feel like we're putting more control in the client's hands ultimately, but we are mm -hmm. also educating them. You know, all of these decades and years of us just taking the, the input and making the magic happen behind the scenes and then coming forth with the solution <clears throat> has made clients still not be able to have an understanding of why things cost what they cost. So my hope too is that what this does is it helps educate clients about what are the drivers and what are the reasons and, and what are the team, you know, impacts to the decisions you're making. So it makes us all smarter, right? Yeah. I've had clients take a look at this platform and say, I can't wait for budget season because what I'm going to do is sit there and put all my programs in and find out how much I need to be sure to ask for, you know, during budget season. And I don't have yeah. to bother anybody. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. So. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a powerful to put that in the hands of the client. Mm -hmm. um, cause then they can have, cause there's, they're going to have internal conversations to, you know, validate or, you know, to kind of fight for a certain budget. And, you know, this is just more information that they can get to. What about for, um, you mentioned that kind of the, the advantage of the client. What about, um, some of the, I call them vendors, but they're, you know, the, you know, the individual contributors or some of the talent that you have that's on this platform, how does that change from what they're doing today? Uh, well for them, uh, you know, we, we did a lot of research, as I mentioned at the beginning, and, and we also talked to freelance community when we started thinking of a model like this. And what we heard from them was so interesting. They love what they do so much, so much that they have committed their, you know, their life to that. That is their work is what they do. What they hate is they hate going out and trying to find new projects. They hate drumming up the new business, right? Mm that takes them away from doing what they love to do. The other thing that takes them away from doing what they love to do is the housekeeping part, the paying the bills, the, the um, you know, invoicing clients, chasing the money, mm -hmm. all those things they hate about their business. They just want to do what they want to do. So when they become part of the Ripple platform, they have uh, opportunities brought to them. They don't have to go out and get them. They get those opportunities. They decide whether they want to pursue them or not. But if it looks good and it's an interesting brand and I've got the bandwidth, yes. And so then I submit my proposal for that. On the other side, you know, we handle all of their housekeeping, all of the payments. You know, they don't have to worry about that at all. So for freelance talent, they love the platform. They run their business through our platform because of the fact that, you know, it keeps them from having to do the, the chores, the burdens as they look at it. Yep. Uh, of being a small business owner. That's a, that's a great combination because you're right. Now they can focus on their strengths and not have to mm -hmm. deal with, um, you know, just the, the accounting and, you know, uh, payroll and, you know, accounts receivable and billing and, and all that stuff. That's, that's great that you've got that as part of this overall platform. Mm -hmm. We do. We absolutely do. So tell me what you like most about this. What do you like most about your job? Um, oh, I like, I like the idea that I'm changing the world. I yeah. honestly, I do. I mean, when you, when you become 52, which is what I am now, you, you want every day to matter. You know, it's, 
your kids are raised, at least mine are, they're in college, you know, I, I really want to spend this time making an impact and bringing, um, you know, some, some goodness forth. And that's what this feels like. It feels really, really good. We've got not only freelancers on this platform, we also have what we call micro agencies. And these are the agencies that are like less than 15 people. And they put their talent up there because there's nothing, <clears throat> there's nothing more scary than to have a very small agency with very thin, you know, razor thin uh, margins. And all of a sudden you are, you only have 50% billable. That, that's a really scary place. And so yeah. this marketplace is supporting clients. This marketplace is supporting the freelance community. And this marketplace is supporting small agencies. You know, we also will staff and help our larger agency partners as well. We will get, you know, we've got an incredible group that are within, um, is, is on our marketplace right now. And so people will come to us saying, you've got the best talent. It's who we need to work with. And so we will help them um, staffing their agencies as well. So it feels, I'm trying to explain it in a way that it feels like good goes around, but, it, but that is honestly the way it feels um, every single day. And I know I couldn't have done this at 20 years old. I needed to have a full 30 years of experience at all of these agencies in all of these disciplines across all of these clients and accounts in order to be able to sit here as one of the oldest entrepreneurs you have ever met in your life. Really. I mean, we, the three of us are all in our 50s. And, you know, they laugh at us because most are in their, you know, 20s and 30s that are part of ATDC, but not us. <laughs> I think that it, it says a lot about the founders, though, that y'all are, one, you've got a great idea and you're bold mm -hmm. in, in terms of trying to implement that. And, you know, that you've also seen where the breaks really are with the old model. And, you know, inertia is a powerful thing. And for some of these companies that have been doing things for a long time, and I'm in the software development business and doing agile transformation and trying to break some of that mindset, it's really, really difficult to do. And sometimes you almost have to create something new that has no overhead and really just kind of show how this is going to work. And once people see it, they go, oh, that's, that makes total sense now. But yeah, sometimes right. you have to kind of go through the pains um, to mm -hmm. really kind of see that, you know, this isn't, this is, it's not sustainable or so much cha has changed in the last five years with how companies are run and how decisions are made and the information that you've got um, available that you might as well leverage that and use it in a way that's productive and efficient. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's fantastic. So where is Ripple today? Are you guys, um, are you, you've got the platform, it's live, you've got mm -hmm. um, freelance Wait. folks there and you've got clients on the site and, and things are humming? We are, yes. And we are entering our beta phase. So, I mean, this is all still very brand new um, mm -hmm. in terms of the platform release, but we are in our beta phase and it is really, really exciting to see what's going on. So, um, well, I can't wait to hear how it, it plays out. This is going to be amazing to watch. Oh, great. I think so, too. Thank you so much, Paul. Well, so let me ask you one, one final question. Um, I'd like you kind of answered this already, but, you know, to go back in time, would, what advice would you give yourself, either from high school or college or when you first started out? Um, well, maybe, maybe you've gotten from the conversation we've had thus far that I'm a planner 
And, you know, I, I have a reason for almost everything I do, right? There's a strategic reason behind it. And, you know, then life has its way with you. So that phrase, life is what happens when you have other plans, it comes to play all the time. And, and you can't have a hard and fast plan. You've really got to learn to be agile and nimble and, you know, able to move and, and change with what the time is. But, I mean, you're always taken care of. So I guess I'd say to myself, you know, don't worry so much. It's, it's all going to fall into place exactly as it's supposed to. That's great advice. I think, you know, especially when you're younger, you sort of have this illusion of control and, Mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, you and I are both parents. And I think when you're single, you only have yourself really to account for, you know, especially in your twenties, if you're, if you're out on your own and you sort of have, you know, no one else to sort of, um, you know, either take care of or be responsible for. Um, But yeah, once you sort of get that perspective of being a parent and things happen and, you know, the weekend was going great until my son broke his arm skateboarding. And then you're like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So now we're at the hospital. Now we're dealing with right. <laughs> how, to, how to deal with this rehab for the next six weeks. And you're like, oh, yes. well, are we supposed to go on vacation next week? So okay. yeah, there's all those things that, you know, planning. And I think, what was it? Um, I think it was Mike Tyson said, everyone's got a plan to get punched in the face, right? So Oh, funny. You know, oh, yeah. I and so it. I think it's, you know, being able to react and having some contingencies and not being so um, just tied into one plan. And if it breaks, then all of a sudden, you know, your life's ruined. I think having that flexibility is really critical. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And, and not stressing about it. So, I mean, not only being flexible, but also just realizing it's all going to work out. And there's, there's no reason to get in a dither over the fact that your plan didn't go to, go to plan, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, It's all going to be okay. And, it's, and you'll figure out a reason why later, you know, it'll all come together and you'll understand. Well, you think about just what's happened this year with COVID and there were, you know, we were talking earlier about sort of the, the, the structure of, of older companies and how they were managed. And I know I can think of three companies I was at on the top of my head where management wanted you butt in the seat and that mm-hmm. you wanted, you know, you weren't going to be working if you weren't here, you'd be goofing off. And they have, there are three folks that I know personally have 180 on that concept because one, they had to because you couldn't go right. into the office and right. two, they started to see the results of it too. So, right. um, you know, just the, the changes in COVID, how has that affected some of what you have been um, trying to do at Ripple? I just think that it sets us up well, you know, because this, this freelance community is, they're so good at running their business and, and conducting their business in a professional way in a remote situation. I mean, they've all, they've, they've many times been remote. I mean, sometimes they've been on site, but they've many times been remote. So it just, Mm -hmm. it kind of sets us up from a client's perspective that they're more accepting and willing um, to try out talent that they can't see, but they can talk to every day. But you know what I mean? They they Mm -hmm. get out of that mindset. So we feel like we're in a really good position for this. I also think a really good point. I, I would also say one more thing. I think that you know, the cuts that they have made and, and the cuts that, that we have seen across the board, they are going to be very slow to rehiring those roles. And I imagine they're going to be looking for more, you know, contract type work um, to backfill uh, those positions until they feel comfortable and feel like we're on the right path. So that's another way that I think that we are um, 
making some inroads. Yeah. Yeah. It certainly gives um, individuals an avenue to still showcase their talents. And, you know, I was going to say earlier, if, you know, because I talked to somebody who's in the legal business and, you know, the, the, the big structured um, law firms that have the nice offices and the marble floors and all that. Well, if you can't get there, it doesn't really matter. Right. So now it's really about the work. What can you do and at what price? Um, so yeah, that, that does actually, I didn't even think about that, but that makes total sense that in this remote world, and, and I know I'm dealing with this in, in my job, you know, I don't think that we'll go back to where we were before I would just travel this weekend um, with my daughter to, it was just a, a school visit. And I just forgot the grind of getting to the airport and getting on the plane and, you know, getting to mm-hmm. the hotel and, you know, all that. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you just log on to Zoom and you're going. So it's, right. uh, yeah, that's interesting. True. Yeah. yeah. Well, cool. Well, um, Bonnie, thanks so much for your time. This has been great to kind of just hear about your journey, um, how you, you know, kind of navigated the waters of the agency world. And um, then this, this great idea with Ripple and where that's headed. And I, I can't wait to have a follow-up conversation in, you know, the next several months and kind of hear how things play out and what's ahead for you in 2021. That's great. Thank you. I look forward to it. Thanks, Bonnie. Take care. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.